A good evening and can I welcome you to our time of worship. Can we begin our worship by singing to God's praise in Psalm 100, the first version of the psalm. This psalm sings of the joy that we should have eh, when we come to worship God. And if you're like me, usually you come to worship out of a sense of duty or out of a sense of habit instead of a sense of joy. So can we sing Psalm 100 to God's praise? with God in prayer. Holy God and our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We gather before a God who we have no real concept of. We judge you on our own pathetic little standards because we think that you're kind of like us. And you are beyond what we can think. Even using the word holy, we don't really understand what holy means. But we bless you that strangely, when we come before you through Jesus, your Son, if we believe in him and accept him, what you see is holy people. And we wouldn't dare let anyone else in this building see what is going on in our minds because we know it is far from holy. But we do praise you for Jesus' holiness covering us. We thank you for that awful instrument of execution, the cross. We thank you from the cross that Jesus cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We thank you that from the cross he cried, Tetelestai, it is finished. 
And in this building here, judged on the cross, there are two types of people. There are the sheep and there are the goats. Those who believe in Jesus, those whose trust are on him, are going to be rewarded. We are the sheep that will go to the one side. But those who still do not trust in Jesus the Saviour will go to another side. And we pray that this evening everyone here would come to trust in the Saviour. We thank you that on the cross there was another conversation because a thief turned to the one in the middle cross and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he was told, today you will be with me in paradise. And I pray that everyone will ask Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We thank you that we are coming before a God we can petition. We are living in a time that we are so concerned about, so worried about. Everything seems to be in chaos just now. And we're in danger of judging you, of thinking that you have lost it. But maybe it is that you have lost us. And you're giving us over to Romans chapter 1. We see the prices of common things that we need for everyday life, like our electricity, our fuel for our cars, our food, racing up in price in a way that we just could not have imagined two years ago. We see the political uncertainty. We don't even have a proper prime minister now. And we see no one that seems to be capable of taking over from Boris Johnson. We just don't know where to turn or what to do. But we are glad that you are on the throne. You are ruling and you make no mistakes and you will work everything out for your own glory. And we ask that you would help us at this time. We pray about the war in the Ukraine. War is just an appalling thing. There are times in your Bible you've called for it, you've demanded it. But it's an appalling thing. We pray for the families that have lost people. We pray for the soldiers on either side young and a wee bit older but they tend to be young we pray for families where there is a father taken away a husband taken away and we ask in your mercy father that you would bring this war to an end restrain Putin ideally we would love Putin to bow down in front of Jesus but if he doesn't do that Take him away. We pray that you would just help the ordinary people who want to live their everyday lives. We pray for the after effects of war because there will be men left with injuries, appalling injuries they will have to carry. There will be ones with mental injuries which you don't see but are so awful. So help there. We pray too this evening for an old lady in my own congregation, Ella, who has lost the last of her sisters. And we pray that you would draw near to her in comfort. We pray that she would know that there is a friend that is closer than a brother. We pray for a, f- a mutual friend of Faki and myself, Alan McKenzie, who has just come through fairly radical cancer treatment. We ask you to lay your hand of healing on him. We pray he would know your strength at this time and remember his family. We do remember the old people and the problems that they face as they come into the twilight years. We remember the young people of the congregation. We're jealous for their souls. We ask you would save them. And we pray for the busy people in the middle part of life 
asking that you'd help them in the busyness and in the stresses. We pray in our country for a turning back to God, for this thing called revival. Now if we confess honestly before you, Lord, part of us dreads revival because it demands a change of ourselves and our attitudes to service. But we ask and we seek for revival. We pray for Fahi, the minister here. We pray for his health at this time. We pray that you would be with him, that your hand of healing would be on him. We pray for his family. We pray for his ministry to this congregation, asking that you would bless it. We pray for the elders, for the deacons. We pray for the Sunday school teachers, for the Friday club leaders. We pray for everything that is done in the furtherance of your kingdom over in this part of Easter Ross. We pray for um, just a, a huge blessing to come in this congregation that would touch the area around about the church, that you'd work, your Holy Spirit would work on the souls and the hearts of people. We pray now for our time of worship. Draw in with us. Help us to heart worship you. Help us to have a time where we are changed and to be made more like Jesus, your Son. And we ask your pardon for all our sins through him. Amen. Our second psalm is Psalm 8, verses 3 to 9. We're going to sing these five stanzas. This is a, a psalm that sings about what a great God that we worship. When I look up unto the heavens, which thine own fingers framed, unto the moon and to the stars, which were by thee ordained, to God's praise. We turn in our Bibles for our reading to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10, and we will read verses 1 to 15. 
As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horam, and struck them as far as Azekah and Machedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horam, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with a sword. At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jeshar, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day? There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And we will go back to Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Amen. This is God's living word, and we would ask that he would bless it to our souls. We're going to sing our third item of praise, which is a much less well-known psalm. It's Psalm 35. But it's a psalm that seems to be pleading with God for help in time of battle. So we're going to sing four stanzas from verse 1 through to verse 5. Plead, Lord, with those that plead, and fight with those that fight with me. Of shield and buckler take thou hold, stand up, mine help to be. To God's praise.
this evening is Joshua chapter 5 and verse 14 and he said no but I am the commander of the army of the Lord now I have come and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped I am the commander of the army of the Lord and now I have come now when I started preparing this and it's actually you're getting it first hand it was for the prayer meeting in our own church on Wednesday so they'll get it second hand but when I started preparing this I had no idea um, where to go or what to, to do a service on and Joshua chapter 10 just happened to be the part of the Bible that I was reading in myself so I'll do a little bit of history with you to start with After 40 years of trekking through the Sinai Peninsula, the Israelites have landed at last in the land of Canaan. Moses is dead. Joshua, his, well he's not so young now, but he was his young assistant, the son of Nun, he has taken over as leader. He is one of only two people left who had been originally in the land of Egypt. He had been a slave. Now he is the leader of a huge people. The works of providence are very strange. Now, we read in in Judges chapter 2 that Joshua was 110 when he died. And this is probably 51 years before that. So if you did a wee bit of math, he's likely to be 59 but on reading about it there are some people suggest he was 68 there are some people suggest he was 78 and I even saw it suggested that he was 101 but I think the 59 would be a reasonable age to go for at the incidence of the golden calf 40 years earlier he's described as a young man the Israelites come into the promised land from a strange direction to come from Egypt They come in from the east. Now if they had come in from Egypt directly, they would come in from the southwest. So due to their 40 years of wandering about the Sinai Peninsula, they have come in from a completely different direction. They probably wandered as far south as Saudi Arabia and the Yemen. But they approach from the far side of the Jordan. And God then comes and he guarantees victory in the military campaign that's ahead. And he vows never to leave the Israelites, but there's a condition. And the condition is that they obey his laws. Joshua then sends two spies across the Jordan to explore the territory. And these two spies make their way into the city of Jericho. Now, Jericho was the strongest fortress in Canaan. It was strategic to taking the land. It was key as a a military campaign. 
Now it's the strangest of people who take care of the spies when they go into Jericho because she's a prostitute. She hides the spies and she even tells lies when the leaders of the city come trying to find them. Now she gives an absolutely amazing statement of faith in Joshua chapter 2. Now this is a prostitute speaking. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And when you read that bit about Rahab, every time the word Lord is used, you will find it is in block capitals. Now when it's in block capitals in the Old Testament, it means that she is using God's covenant name Yahweh as her name to talk of God. I haven't a clue how she had this knowledge. But she did. And she asks for protection for herself and for her family when the Israelites destroy Jericho. And the two spies promise to preserve her. And she also describes to them um, the sort of weakness of the people round about because they're intimidated by what they've heard of Israel. So the spies make their way back and they report to Joshua the shaky condition of the enemy, which is encouraging. The Israelites then cross the River Jordan in a most unusual way. A team of priests leads the way into the Jordan, and the Jordan River's waters stop flowing, and the people are able to make their way across on dry land as they did the Red Sea earlier. To celebrate this miracle when they reach the other side, they take 12 stones from the riverbed, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, and they build an altar to God. This is the time that they start eating the produce of the land, so the manna stops at that point there. And then the Israelite men have to undergo that awful ritual of circumcision. Because a whole generation has passed since leaving Egypt, which has not been circumcised. That's a little bit of history. And that leads us to the passage in Joshua chapter 5 about the commander of the Lord's army. And that's what I want to look at next, the commander of the Lord's army, or the commander of the army of the Lord. Approaching Jericho... Joshua encounters this strange, mysterious man with a drawn sword. David Guzik, he says about it, as the leader of God's people, he has a responsibility to see if this warrior is a friend or a foe. So Joshua asks, are you for us or for our adversaries? It was the logical question to put to this impressive, rather frightening man. And the response of the man is really curious. Because he says, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. It wasn't a proper answer to Joshua's question. But in a sense, Joshua's question was not the proper question. Yes, logically it was. It wasn't the right question. It wasn't the most important question. The real question should have been addressed to the man by the man to Joshua. Are you on the Lord's side? And the strange man explains, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And he gives a very brief message. Now I have come. And the feeling I get is kind of like when I watch Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers where the people of Rohan have withdrawn into the citadel at Helm's Deep and battle is imminent and if you've seen it at the cinema the the bass music is really quite disturbing You, you actually feel it in your body the place is under siege and one of the heroes, Legolas he almost loses heart and he has to ask he has to ask Aragorn for forgiveness for his wrong despair 
And as all hope seems lost, a huge army of elves turn up. And Aragorn tells them, you are most welcome. And I am certain that when Joshua met with the commander of the army of the Lord, and he realised who he was, he was most welcome. The commander of the army of the Lord has come to help Joshua. Now this strange event is believed to be an example of what's called a Christophany. An appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. When the man tells Joshua that he is the commander of the army of the Lord, Joshua's instinct is to worship him. Now normally if angels are worshipped, they tell the person not to worship them. But this man does not refuse the worship. He accepts it. The only man that I know that can accept worship is Jesus Christ. And then Joshua asks, is there a message for him? Is there a command? Because there's a battle ahead. And what's the command? Take your sandals from off your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy. This was the command given to Moses at the burning bush. Where God appeared to him and revealed himself as Yahweh, the great I Am. Only God can cause ground to become holy. So this stranger, we're told, is a man. And this stranger is also God. And the only person I know that fits into that is Jesus Christ. We don't know if any more advice was given. We don't know of Joshua's feelings. We don't know of Joshua's response other than that of worship. But what an assurance on the evening of battle that the commander of the army of the Lord has come. And the commander of the army of the Lord will return to almost this spot in 1400 years time because Jericho is the town where Jesus spent the last weekend of his life before the cross and as Jesus goes into Jericho he encounters four people the first is told us by Mark and by Luke he meets a beggar by the side of the road going into Jericho and the beggar shouts out to him son of David have mercy on me Mark tells us his name's Bartimaeus. I presume Mark knew him. And he was blind. And Jesus gave him his sight. And then as he passed through Jericho, and it's Luke that tells us this, he meets a wee man. A wee man called Zacchaeus. And this wee man is so small, he has to shin up a tree, a sycamore tree, to try to see what's going on and to try and get a glimpse of Jesus. And as Jesus passes the tree, he looks up and he says to Zacchaeus, come down, I'm coming to your house. And Zacchaeus comes down and Jesus lodges with him on the last weekend of his life on this earth. And then on leaving Jericho, and it's Matthew that records it, Jesus meets another two beggars. And these two beggars say exactly the same thing as blind Bartimaeus did. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus performs a similar miracle. Some of you have probably been to Palestine, to the Holy Land. I'm terrified of flying. Not the actual flying, it's the going to the airport and going through it and getting my bags checked and knowing where I'm going, finding my way onto the actual plane. That's terrifying. Once you're sitting on it, it's fine. I don't know will I ever see the Holy Land. I would love to see Jericho, the place where the commander of the army of the Lord appeared, and the place where Jesus Christ spent the last week, the last weekend of his life. And isn't it another strange thing that the commander of the army of the Lord, the name that he took while on this earth, was Jesus, which is a vulgarization for us British people of Yeshua which is Joshua 
find it very strange that the name he took was Joshua. Also while we're on names, I don't know, do you you pick up the name of the king eh, in Jerusalem? His name was Adonai Zedek. Adonai Zedek means something like Lord of Righteousness. Now it's very equivalent to the one that we know a wee bit better, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is king of righteousness who was king in Jerusalem when Abraham was around. But here we find the one with the name the Lord of Righteousness actually opposing the real Lord of Righteousness. What Adonai Zedek is, is he's an example of the Antichrist in the Old Testament. And in Joshua chapter 10, we see the outcome when there is a battle between the real Christ and the Antichrist. But before we look at the battle, I'll give you a little bit more history. That's the third thing I want to talk about. Following Joshua, following God or following Yahweh's instructions, Joshua leads the Israelites into carrying the Ark of the Covenant round Jericho every day, once a day, for six days. There's not a word, there's not a noise from the people. On the seventh day, um, Joshua rallies his men. They're going to conquer the city. But they're given instructions. They are not to take any items of religious significance. And on the seventh day, they go around seven times. Silently. And suddenly, at the end of the silence, there's a huge cry. And the walls of Jericho tumble down. And the Israelites are in and they slaughter everyone and completely destroy the city. Joshua's fame spreads throughout the land. The Israelites then attack Ai and they are humiliated this time in their attack of Ai. And then they have a a series of prayer and love lots to try and work out what has gone on. And eventually it's tracked down to the disobedience of Achan who had taken some items that were forbidden and had hidden them in his tent. Achan and his family are stoned to death. And then there's a renewed attack on on Ai. And Joshua masterminds an impressive military plan and the city is taken and as usual, when there's something great has happened to Israel at this time, they build an altar to God outside Ai, and they reaffirm their commitment to God and to his laws. Now, a city quite near at hand was Gibeon. And the people of Gibeon, seeing what was going on, became very alarmed. And they came up, and they disguised themselves as if they had been on a long, wearisome journey. And they came to Joshua and they asked to make peace. Now Joshua was a bit hasty here. Joshua didn't inquire of God what he should do. And he immediately made a treaty with these people only to find out that they were inhabitants of the land that they were going to conquer. Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, was alarmed watching the advance of the Israelites. He had seen Jericho fall. He'd seen Ai fall, and now he sees the people of Gibeon making a treaty with Israel. Now Jericho was about 18 miles from Jerusalem. Ai is about 10 miles from Jerusalem. Gibeon is just 6 miles from Jerusalem. No wonder Adonai Zedek is worrying. And what was also so alarming for him is as we read that, we see that Gibeon was a great city. It was full of warriors. It wasn't just a a pushover. Even though they had used deception to make their um, peace with Joshua. And this is where we are at the story, where we come to the last thing. And don't build your hopes up. The last thing is the biggest thing. The last thing is a rout. Adonai Zedek contacts 
the kings of Hebron, of Jarmuth, of Lachish, and of Eglon. Now these are southern kingdoms. What had happened is Joshua and the Israelites have come in from the east. They've taken the principal fortress, Jericho. So they've split the north and they've split the south. It's very clever militarily. So Adonai Zedek can only contact other kings from the southern area to make some sort of pact with. Now it would seem that these uh, parts of Canaan are all just divided into city-states. They're all separate. They all have their own kings. They're not one kingdom. But they're afraid to attack Israel. They will not attack Israel because they're terrified of them. So they attack Gibeon, who has just just become an ally of Israel. Walter Wearsby says, As this confederation of armies and kings assembled, God in heaven must have laughed, as in Psalm 2. Because unknown to them, he was using these events to accomplish his own purposes. Instead of having to defeat these five city-states one by one, he would help Joshua conquer them all at the one time. The alarmed Gibeonites send to Joshua, whom they've made a pact with, for help. And where is Joshua? Back at Gilgal, where they built the altar when they had crossed over the Jordan River. It seems to be a special place in the Promised Land. Joshua had made a solemn promise to Gibeon. And even though he had been cheated into making it, he is going to fulfill his promise because he understands the binding nature of a covenant. And he responds immediately, doesn't waste time. The army marched through the night from Gilgal to Gibeon. Now to give you an idea, those of you who have done any of them in rows, they walk 25 miles. They start 781 feet below sea level. They end up at 2,400. 2,425 feet above sea level. It's, it's Monroe height. It's over Monroe height. So 25 miles and a Monroe. You will be shattered if you have walked that. Particularly overnight, you've missed your sleep. So this is an exhausted army. Now we know, those of us who have done a bit of Scottish history, about another exhausted army. We know that on the 15th of April, 1745, the Jacobite army (coughs) tried to copy their success at Preston Pans and attack the English army at night time. They set off in the darkness of night because they were concerned that the Royal Navy ships down in the Murray Firth would see the soldiers crossing over to Nairn. And Lord George Murray led them across land instead of via roads. But by the time the leading troops reached Cool Rake, which was two miles before they were going to cross the river Nairn and surround Nairn, time was running out. There was only an hour left till dawn. So Lord George Murray and the other leaders gathered together and they had a discussion and they realised they couldn't launch a surprise attack. So they marched the army back towards Culloden. And they didn't follow the path that they had taken. They went along the road to Inverness. And not long after this exhausted army reached Culloden, word came of the advancing government troops along the road. And we know the outcome of that battle. Because this exhausted army were defeated at Culloden. The last pitched battle fought on British soil. Joshua went with his exhausted army in faith. Because the Lord had promised, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. God himself, the commander of the army of the Lord, had promised to fight for them. And the commander of the army of the Lord works three amazing miracles. Even before the battle starts, 
God throws the army into panic. They hadn't even lined up. And the army starts running away. And the Israelites attack them and kill them as they're retreating. And then the second miracle is that this was followed by the most extraordinary artillery. Because we're told that God himself threw rocks from heaven. And that more died because of the rocks thrown from heaven than were killed by the Israelite army. And then there was a third and astonishing miracle. The earth stopped rotating. Now, from me having done a wee bit of physics, it's a staggering miracle. The earth rotating carries a vast amount of momentum. Now, you have some idea of that. The young people much more. But we all, even old guys like me, have an idea that once you get a roundabout rotating you're scraping your feet on the ground to try and stop it it takes a bit of stopping if one of your pals took a dirty great big rock and chucked it under the roundabout and stopped it rotating like that you would be violently thrown off it because you have momentum as well To stop the earth rotating is an incredible miracle because what should happen is there should be cataclysmic events, there should be tidal waves, the earth stops, the sea keeps going on, the earth stops, the mountains should crumble down. The earth stops, the earth's surface should start cracking, there should be earthquakes. The earth stops. And volcanoes start erupting. But God stopped all that. That didn't happen. But we're also told that the moon stood still. Now the moon is what controls our tides. It's the attraction of the gravity to the seawater that that causes the tides. So all the water of the oceans would be surging towards the moon's gravity. There are explanations given of some passing meteor caused a slight tilt on the earth's axis there's explanations given that there was a strange refraction of the light some people say oh it's written in poetry so this didn't happen at all no God wrought a mighty miracle by stopping the earth rotating but as far as I understand he would have to stop every law I presume the Earth's elliptical orbit round the Sun, it had to stop. I presume the movement of our solar system in our galaxy had to stop. I presume the movement of the galaxies as the universe is expanding had to stop. All so that the commander of the army of the Lord could defeat his people's enemies. I don't want an explanation for this miracle. I don't want my God limited. My God is omnipotent. He is all powerful. This is effortless for God to stop the earth rotating. And to do that, Joshua offered a most astonishing prayer. We read in verse 12 that at the time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Aijalon. It's not a reverent prayer, is it? It's almost as if Joshua is commanding the sun and the moon or he's commanding God. And yet God listens to his prayer. Joshua needed that time to pursue his enemies and defeat them before darkness came. Otherwise the enemy would escape and maybe re-rally. We are told that there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Dale Ralph Davis notes that Joshua's prayer was some prayer. Though it was spoken to Yahweh, it was nevertheless a man's direct command to the elements under only God's control. Yet Yahweh listened to the voice of a man. It's astounding. 
Isn't it still amazing that God listens to the voice of a man or a woman who comes to him? Doesn't this view of prayer both rebuke both the flippancy and the tedium with which we often approach the great king? And another vital fact eh, at this point here is the sun and the moon were actually gods of the Canaanites. So it must have been a pretty frightening thing for them to see their gods stopping, standing still for the first time ever. I'm not going to go over the conclusion of the story. The five kings hide themselves in a cave. Joshua has the mouth of the cave blocked up with stones. Eventually the Israelites go back, drag them out. They're humiliated and they're executed. The victory of the commander of the army of the Lord is complete. If we had read further into Joshua chapter 10, we would see at the very end that Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. So this takes us to our conclusion. We use the expression time standing still. We might use it of an awful time in our lives that time stood still. Or we might use it of a really nice time in our lives because we want time to stand still to enjoy it more. But there is only one time when time did seem to stand still. Time does not stand still. It rushes along. Now you young people here, great to be young. But those of us who are older will tell you, and you get weary of old people telling you, it soon passes. Our lives are short. I can hardly believe I'm an old man. I can hardly believe I've got three grandchildren. I'm in the twilight years. And I have such mixed feelings about it because I absolutely dread the frailty of old age. I dread losing my mind. I dread the final illness. I dread the time coming when I will take that last breath. I dread dying. Now there might be some wonderful Christians that will tell you from this pool but they have no problem with it. But I'm being rank honest with you. I dread it all. I'm terrified of it. I know when the time comes I will be given the grace for it. But I have another dread. And the dread would be to be left on this earth eternally with the sin that is all around. With my own sin. The time we're living in is absolutely appalling. We've looked at three staggering miracles. We've seen an army put to flight before the opposing army arrived. We've seen that God threw rocks from heaven. We see that God stopped the movement of the planet. But the more staggering miracle, and we take it for granted, is that Jesus became a baby. The commander of the Lord's army that could do these miracles became a fetus. To use that horrible word that the abortionists use to try to deny that they're actually human beings. This is an amazing miracle that God became man. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I praise God for that strange man that asked Joshua, Are you for us or for that Joshua asked, Are you for us or for your our adversaries adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. The commander of the army of the Lord is our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ is God who came onto the earth 2,000 years ago. I believe that Jesus has removed the sting from death, which I dread so much. I believe that Jesus will return at the end of the age. 
I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I pray with all my heart that every one of you believes the same. I pray that you will believe in the commander of the army of the Lord. And I will pray that you see Jesus Christ as Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. Can we bring our time of worship to an end by singing in Psalm 2, verses 1 to 7, which is five stanzas. Now Psalm 2 is about the Lord's anointed, it's about the Messiah, it's about the Christ, the commander of the Lord's army. I quoted a little bit, or I didn't quote, I mentioned it uh, earlier on. He that in heaven sits shall laugh, the Lord shall scorn them all. Then shall he speak to them in wrath, and rage he vex them shall. From 1 to 7 of Psalm 2. God, we thank you for this, your only Son, that you have begotten, the commander of the army of the Lord, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you for being such a great and caring and loving God. We ask that you would be with each one of us, that we would all know you, that we would all love you, that we would all trust in you. We pray for your blessing now in the week ahead. Be with us in all that we face. We tend to keep you out of our decisions, but help us to keep in contact with you through 